Welcome to the Birth Uprising Podcast. I'm Dr. Sarah, a chiropractor, birth educator, and lifelong questioner of nonsensical rules and authority. I'm here to help you navigate the maze that is maternity care and to think more critically about what you've been told is necessary and normal during pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and motherhood. We as women are tired of being coerced, lied to, and manipulated. And through education, we're taking back our power. So grab a cup of coffee and join the uprising. All right, welcome back to the Birth Uprising podcast. I'm Dr. Sarah. Emily is here today, and we have a special guest, Dr. Morgan McDermott. She is a naturopath, and we are going to be talking about her new book on mastitis, which Emily and I were just discussing. Disgusting. Discussing. I'm super tired. Are lucky <laughs> to have never experienced. So, which is crazy. I know people ask me all the time what to do for mastitis, and I'm like, I don't know. So this is great. Now I'll now I'll have something. So <laughs> yeah, and unfortunately, I know way too much about mastitis, but it's okay. It's I'm here to help. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> From personal experience or all the things. Yes. Yeah. Yes. From personal mm -hmm. experience, unfortunately. So I'll just go into it with my first son. So all three of my kids have been lip and tongue tied, mm -hmm. but with posterior ties. And they're a little bit harder to diagnose. And my son was born in 2015. And I just feel like maybe it wasn't as common of a thing, you know, I mean, and now they're so common, but there's a little bit of overdiagnosis as well going on. But in the case of my children, it is an absolute game changer to get their revision. So I was told by a lactation consultant uh, that, you know, my raw bleeding nipples on day three postpartum were just like kind of normal part. Of course, I had to get used to it and we were trying to fix things and whatever. I got mastitis on day four postpartum, my first oh, child. Jesus. So basically my milk came in and he didn't remove anything. Mm. And I didn't know what was going on. And he was a big baby. He was nine pounds, three ounces. And he slept a lot. He was just sort of a big sleepy baby. And I thought that he was happy because he was getting milk from me all the time because I was feeding him for like 45 minutes at a time. Yeah. But he wasn't getting anything. And I was just getting more and more engorged. And I have small breasts anyway. There's almost like no fat or area for anything to get in. And I was like popping, like the skin was shiny. You know, that, it was not good. It what was happened not to me? Cute. Like, yeah, me like too, there were actually. melons stuffed under my skin. But after yeah, my after engorgement my was insane. Yeah, it's like it's I have pictures yeah. of it. I mean, I it's yeah, it's alarming to look yeah, at, right? Yeah. It is alarming. Like I got stretch marks on the side of my breast because okay. of how the milk came in, you know? Yeah. So I dealt with that. It was horrible. I had 103 degree fever for days. You know, my milk, my nipples are just bleeding. Um, finally, I reluctantly used a nipple shield and then it ripped the scab that I had going like oh, up into the top of the shield. So then there was just a big hole in the face of my nipple. Anyway, long story oh. short, I got mastitis oh. in at three weeks postpartum and I went to this different lactation consultant. Well, first of all, no, let me back up. I was doing the triple feeding. So you're like nursing and then pumping and then re-giving them more milk. I had this friend at school. I was in the middle of med medical school when he was born who made way, she was an oversupply chick. So she would come and she would nurse him from her own breast and she'd be like, this hurts. And I'm like, okay, thank you for telling me that because it hurts me really badly, you know? Yeah. But with her, her, you know, worn sage wisdom nipples, like it didn't necessarily damage her, but she was like, this is not necessarily a great latch. I was doing all the things, 
cranial sacral therapy, chiropractic therapy, but nobody really was like, yeah, he's probably tongue tied. The lactation consultant was really sure that he wasn't. And she told me, and I'll never forget this, as you know, when you're in that postpartum, when you're in birth or you're postpartum, the words that are said to you are so impactful and they last a lifetime. And we're sitting in her office and I'm, you know, maybe six days, seven days postpartum. And she's like, you just don't have enough milk. It's not him. It's you. You just don't have enough milk. And I was like, I don't understand how that's possible. I have, look at my boots. Like, yeah, point one, you know? Yeah. Well, I, but I remember driving home in the back seat. My husband was driving. We were on the freeway. This is in California. And he's in the car seat and he's sleeping. And I'm just looking at him like, I was so excited to breastfeed. And I can't believe that I'm just not one of those people that can do it, I guess. Like, yeah, because I just didn't know anything. So anyways, fast mm-hmm. forward, I'm doing all this stuff. We have an SNS tube, a supplemental nervous system, or nervous system, supplemental uh, nursing system, which is like a little tiny thin tube and you feed it into the corner of their mouth. And I was you know, trying to do that at the breast or my husband would tape it to his pinky finger and feed him. This is in the middle of the night, all around the clock. You know, it's very stressful. I'm pumping. I'm giving him milk. He's finally, he, he didn't regain birth weight for three weeks, but I got mastitis again at three weeks. And I was at this um, free lactation group with a different lactation consultant who was managing it. And she kind of heard my story and she was like, whoa, 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 wait, what did you just say? And so I told her about it. And thankfully, she used her detective mind and was like, well, let me see it real quick and looked in his mouth, lift up his lip. First of all, his lip was a grade four lip tie, which is meaning that it's all the way wrapped underneath the gum line and it's notching the the bone of his gum line. And then Mm -hmm. she like, you know, she put gloves on, she's fiddling around in his mouth and she's like, oh, my gosh. She's like, honey, like, he's so tied. You like, no wonder, you know, you've been having all these problems. I was like, Oh my gosh. Okay. Thank you. So she really, uh, this is right before Christmas. So all the dentists were going on like holiday, of course. And she worked with me to get his revision and I'm not kidding you. So it took him three weeks to regain birth weight. He lost over a pound. It was very scary. Uh, the second we got him revised, he started to gain one pound a week for several weeks. And he jumped up to this big fat baby and (laughs) my nipples finally healed. And it was amazing. I went on still to have mastitis between my three children, I've had my size over 10 times. Jeez. Either 10 what? or <laughs> Yeah. What? <laughs> and I would say that I would rather give birth than have mastitis. Mm. Like I, it's. I believe it. The pain is, and it's just a special kind of hell because you have to take care of this newborn and you, you need to be nursing them, but it's so painful and you suddenly have the flu. Like you just get hit by a Mack truck one day and all of a sudden you have this like high fever and. So anyway, I, you know, over the course of the years, again, this is 2015 that this was all going down for the first time for me. There wasn't that many resources around anything to do with mastitis that wasn't antibiotics. So the other thing was that I knew besides my first instance of mastitis, which was bacterial because my nipples were open gaping wounds. I had clear pus on them. Um, My fever was very high. It was 103. Like that was a bacterial mastitis. And I did end up taking antibiotics and I do think it was necessary and it helped in that scenario. Mm-hmm. But yeah. there is so much of mastitis that is happening all around the world that is not bacterial based and does not require antibiotics. And it's really frustrating because another thing that is missed in this whole picture with the medical world is that they don't do informed consent or education around the fact that when you as a breastfeeding mother take antibiotics, your baby, you are now putting yourself and your baby at risk for thrush, which is yeast that happens afterwards that is passed back and forth between mom and baby from the breast to the mouth or pump parts or whatever. And is really difficult to get rid of. And like, we should be supplementing with probiotics and also just have the knowledge about that so that 
when there's these symptoms that come up later, they're not like going on for weeks and weeks. It's getting worse and worse. They're like, what is this happening? So anyway, that's kind of like how I got into this. Mm-hmm. Um, and though, even though through with three children, I was learning a lot about mastitis. I do think that because my kids are tied, their latches are still kind of crappy. That's probably why I continue to keep getting it. Um, with one of my, my middle daughters, she was the least tied and I only had it once with her and it was during weaning. So if you're a woman who's prone to this, there are certain things that we need to be, you know, watching out for. And I probably was weaning her a little too quickly. I was pregnant and it was like a whole thing. I was trying to kind of not be weaning or breastfeeding anymore because it was hurt. It was painful. And anyways, so I've had mastitis in like the instance of a newborn with a crappy latch in the instance of overworking myself in school and I can talk a little bit about this later but like there's a whole energetics about mastitis which I think several of my first child's situations when I had mastitis with him so I had six mastitis bouts with him and I think I was in the middle of medical school I was like really depleted I didn't take care of myself in the way that I should have you know what I mean there was a lot there that I think was energetic output and not mothering myself and that's sort of there's this um Louise Hay-esque idea about mastitis you know what i'm saying with louise hay how she'll think that or she has in her one of her books um you know maybe constipation the the mental emotional energetics behind constipation would be like that you're not letting go like you're holding on to things and you're not letting them go and issues of the breast thinking breast cancer too which is you know obviously one of the largest causes of cancer for women in this mm-hmm. country it breast issues have to do with the lack of being mothered isn't that so interesting and like that doesn't have it's to so literally sad. be when you're. I know it's so sad. It, I feel mm-hmm. so sad for myself in that instance. Like, yeah. not necessarily mothered by your mother, but taken care of. Yeah, you know. And as we know, and as you guys have talked about in the past, with just the way that we treat birthing and pregnant women, and as if they're supposed to just act like nothing happened. Right. Bodies. Yeah. And that's just not true, you know. So that's kind of like the the gist of how I came to get into this, I became like an expert and was helping people just in my own lay situation because of how much experience I did have with it and how to avoid the antibiotics by using herbs, like using echinacea, using homeopathics, using hydrotherapy. So hydrotherapy is the use of water for a, a medicinal sort of outcome or purpose where you're using hot and cold water um, to shunt blood flow by vasoconstriction and vasodilation and all of the benefits that ha- that has um, for reducing swelling, which is a huge instance in mastitis. So back to the different types of mastitis, for me, almost all of them, except aside for that one first one, they were all inflammatory mastitis, mm-hmm. which nobody really talks about. But there is a big difference between bacterial and, mas- and inflammatory mastitis. So bacterial is exactly how it sounds. It's from a bacteria. It's usually Staph aureus, and it's usually from there being a uh, damage at the nipple where now Staph aureus, which is a very normal um, skin colonizing bacteria, gets in to the milk ducts, which like it's the most beautiful sort of perfect environment for them. It's sweet and dark and milk. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, And it's unfortunate because they proliferate really fast in that instance. Um, And so anyways, when there is bacterial mastitis there's still some things that we can do for like the first 24 48 hours before going to antibiotics and i do outline that in the uh ebook as well and it's it's borderline because you need to be comfortable with this you need to be talking about it with your doctor and knowing 
where the risk is or where the line is because mastitis can, the risk here is that it can become very serious and become abscessed where your body sort of builds a wall around the infection mass and it's almost like a cyst inside of your breast. So it's walled off, the infection walls off and that's really bad. (laughs) You need to go to the hospital. (laughs) We need sometimes IV antibiotics. Um, It's difficult to treat those things naturally and it's just so risky. And with being postpartum and having a newborn, it's not necessarily something that unless you have to handle it naturally because of lack of resources, it's something, you know, you need to go to the hospital and take care of it because it can go septic. So I know somebody who's almost died from mastitis because of her abscess ruptured. The infection filled so much. It's, you know, it's not it, yes, it's cased off, but it doesn't mean that it can't pop on accident, you know, and that the infection leaked out and it became septic, which means that it was in her bloodstream and it was really, really traumatic and horrible. That's very uncommon, very, very uncommon. Yeah. But we need to know, like, we need to know what we're playing with. You know, it can be serious. But again, so many instances of mastitis are inflammatory. So what does that mean? That means that the cause of even the fever and the pain, the redness, uh, and the, the sensitivity, and the lack of the milk coming out, too. That's something that people can notice. And that might be from a clogged duct, but that would be an inflammatory mastitis, like, etiology. Meaning, like, the origin, the root cause. How is that happening? Um, is because of maybe milk getting backed up from something, like a clogged duct, potentially. Or from going too long in between feeding your baby. Maybe, you know, you, you should have pumped, or you should have fed your baby, and you didn't. Or... You got really full and then you had something like a backpack strap. So I outline a lot of these different like risk factors mm. in the ebook as well to be careful of. Because one time I got mastitis from a baby carrier, where baby wearing, but the strap was like on my breasts in a way. And I was still quite engorged. And again, I have these like really sensitive breasts. So I think I have like, you know, perfect storm situation. <laughs> yeah. Um, where that might not be the case, you know, or sleeping on your belly. One time I got mastitis after a massage because I was on my belly. Oh, my God. So silly. Can you even? I know. One time I got mastitis from eating a sandwich. And another time I went for a walk. And I just got mastitis. That's what this sounds like. And it's terrible. I I cannot believe that. Like how many times you've gotten it. I know. And so I like rightly so with my first, I had 10 months of postpartum anxiety that wasn't really managed or addressed Mm. or even recognized because I was so panicked. I felt like at any given moment, if I'm not constantly managing this perfectly, I'm going to get mastitis. And like I said, I would rather give birth than have mastitis. It is horrible. And I was in school and taking care of this baby and stuff. So I just felt like I'm so prone. Like, what's going on? You know? But um, let me just so, say yes. before you yeah. go on, ha- listening to your story about your first and, and the breastfeeding journey in the beginning, I'm having flashbacks because my son, oh. he was born in 2016. He has a tongue tie. No one said a word to me. My nipples were bleeding. I luckily did not get an infection. And we did kind of figure it out. But they were cracked. They were sore. Every time he latched on, I winced because I knew what was coming. And it was just, it was terrible, you know. And uh, uh, it sounds a lot like what you went through. Luckily, I didn't didn't have scabs rip off and didn't, didn't get an infection. But... Yeah, nobody, nobody was helpful. And now here we are, and he's six and a half. And I'm like, now we have to get you myofunctional therapy and have your tie revised. And you're this anxiety. We used to call him anxiety baby because, and now he's just anxiety six-year-old because everything makes him a little bit nervous. And I'm like, we're going to mm-hmm. have to, we're going to have to cut that thing, bud. And he's like, I don't want to, 
I don't want to. I'm like, I know, but you, you, right. you snore and grind your teeth and yeah. breathe only through your mouth. And there's so many issues that are going to carry down through your life. And I have them too. So I know, but I had somebody warned me, like by the time I had my third, I was able to recognize that his latch was worse than anybody else's and get it revised yeah. within a couple of months. And it was like night and day. And it's been wonderful ever since. He still, I'm sure, has some issues because it's probably not just his tongue. But that made a world of difference and allowed us, you know, he's 26 months now and we're still still going strong. So, I mean, it can really, if unless you're really determined and can find some people like you luckily did who can actually look at it and diagnose it and make you feel like you have not been insane then mm -hmm. which sometimes those people aren't found so many people give up because it's it's awful even if you don't get an infection if you just have the pain and the baby um, is still hungry and they're crying and you're having you know all these other issues and sleep issues you might say you know what i can't do this and you might give up because you don't have the support and you didn't have the the knowledge of who could even help it's yeah. so true. I, my mom actually had a really hard time nursing my brother and I, and she got mastitis very early on and then did stop. This is in like, you know, the eighties though. And she remembers what was said to her by the lactation consultants, which was, well, you're going to really need to want to do this because this is going to be a long, hard road for you. She was like, what? Yeah, she remembers that all the 30 like, years thanks later. Thanks a lot. Right. What was that? Like, I said, thanks a lot. Like, yeah. thanks for nothing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thanks for nothing. They offered no support, no help. No, nobody looked in my mouth that she remembers. You know, it was, and I probably was tied. And it's just, it is wild. If it doesn't feel super um, feasible or if it feels like the most overwhelming thing in the world, rather, how are you going to continue if you don't get the support? I, yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. I was almost there and I was so bound and determined. I took four months off of medical school planning to be home with my baby so I could nurse him. It was shunting me onto this track where I was going to be doing medical school for another whole year so that I could mm -hmm. do this thing with him and stuff. And I was like, holy crap, I thought I was ready. I thought I knew. I thought I knew what was going on. Like, why are all these friends that I have able to nurse their babies? And I just can't. It doesn't seem, you know, mm -hmm. so the revision was an absolute game changer for us. Um, sometimes I do think that people go and they get revisions thinking that their baby was tongue and lip tied in that same sort of a way and absolutely no change happens. And it's really frustrating. And in those cases, you know, we don't have a crystal ball, but it would be nice to have gone back and done a bunch of different body work and things and tried other methods because for some kids, it's not the root cause. Uh, for mine, it totally was. And for your six-year-old, it sounds like it's going to be a big game changer as well, because yeah. that's the thing about these tongue lip ties, like as just an aside, I know we're talking about mastitis, but it is an interesting topic because I'm seeing now in my practice, all these, yeah, they're like between six and eight, most of them that are coming in with sleep disordered breathing, meaning that they are mm -hmm. breathing with their mouths open. They are snoring, they are grinding. They're all over their beds. You know, the parents wake up in the morning and they're like on the opposite Yes. He's the only one that does this. And he's uh, on the top bunk now. And we were worried when he got to the top bunk, like, is Bo going to fall off? And and he, luckily he has not, he flips around less now, but yes. I And all of these things, the thing is, and ADHD symptoms, like, yes. I have to constantly be doing something, always aware, always looking, always, always have to be busy, can't ever sit still and just constantly going. Like all of the, like I knew all of this and I had known it 
for years since he was small, but didn't know it when he was a baby. And had I known, it would have it would have made a huge difference in the last however many years. And you know, adults too. And like I know, like you said, we're talking about mastitis, but this is important. I have a friend, so I have ADHD symptoms myself. I've I've had a sleep study when I was in my twenties. I like got lost. I don't even know what happened to it. It was weird, by the way. Let me just tell you about this quick because it was funny. They, if they do it properly, they have you, they watch you. So I had to go to this hotel that was across the street from the hospital, and they have these two rooms that they set aside for people having sleep studies one where some man can watch you sleep, and one where you sleep, so sleep with like electrodes on your head and a pulse ox on your finger, and you're supposed to lay there completely still. And then Jerry in the other room's going to watch you. And you're definitely going to sleep totally normally and normal. Fine. Yeah. So weird. So I don't know what so happened weird. to that. But I even knew back then, like, something's got to be off. And, you know, fast forward to now, I have this friend who I've known since I was young has symptoms worse than mine. And I don't know why it didn't occur to me until very recently. Like, we we bond over. We look at the same Instagram accounts of people with ADHD. And I'm like, it's me. It's me. It's you. And we share them all the time. And and just recently, I was like, take a picture of the inside of your mouth, please. I was like, I need you to lift your tongue up. I need you to do this. I need you to do that. And I was like, you have a huge tongue tie. I guarantee you, you, whether you realize it or not, you are not sleeping. And because you're not sleeping, it's been affecting you your entire life. She was like, I got an 800. I don't know how they grade SATs now, but back when I was in high school, it was to 1600. They changed it to like 2400. And then I think back. But anyway, it was 1600 was the the top you could get. And she she was like, I got 800. So basically like half of what you could possibly get on this test just goes to show how her like her testing skills were terrible. Like how many adults are walking around taking medication like she takes medication for ADHD and the symptoms that are the same as someone who has disordered sleep and they just have no idea and like has has anyone ever looked in her mouth i guarantee you they didn't and it's like it's not Mm -hmm. my specialty but i know enough to say you you need to do something about this and then in true friend fashion she hasn't texted me back (laughs) so i don't know i don't know if i get because it's like the whole she gets distracted i get distracted you know whatever but yeah yeah, you're trying to help her out it's i get that everywhere now you know and i i i imagine yeah, you're seeing it all the time and and these kids. And I mean, at that that age range right there is, I think, like a few years ago is when I started learning about it. So baby number two, by baby number two in 2018, I knew. And he had a lip tie, but I was able to work with it and that was okay. But then baby number three, I was like, before I even got him to uh, get his tie revised, I brought him to a chiropractor because he had a really high palate. And I was like, at this mm-hmm. stage, everything is malleable. So I would rather... I don't want to cut parts of his body if I don't have to. Like if we can, if we can work with this, if you can help to get his palate to lower and, you know, his jaw to widen prior and he can actually get the tongue up there, then maybe we don't need to do it. You know, so we tried that totally. first. It just, it wasn't enough. He actually needed it revised and I hated it. It was terrible, but it had to be done. Yeah. No. I, uh, I, my kids, I mean... I never had any issues with breastfeeding, so sorry. Um, sorry no, to all you moms good. out there. It is yeah. good. I'm so happy for you. I yes. don't want you to yeah. have problems with breastfeeding. No, you it, don't have, I have to the, suffer like, with soreness. Us. 
I had the like soreness, like the initial 20 seconds of a feed and it went away after like 10 days. Um, but yeah, I have a friend and, you know, we'll get back to you, but she would try and do things as naturally as possible. And they found her son's tongue tie a little bit later, um, into toddlerhood and, um, it changed the game for her. And she is such a huge advocate now for, um, just oral posture, nasal posture, you know respiratory health oh absolutely um, like it's really there's so many adults walking around like at not max capacity of brain output because of this like i yes. really believe so there's a really good book if anybody's interested in learning some more about the way that nasal breathing and mouth breathing affect the craniofacial function and structure and everything the development uh it's called breath by james nestor it's like bright yellow and it's really good. He doesn't talk that much about tongue ties, but I feel like he did a really, really thorough job about all other aspects about breathing. He just touched was, on it a little bit. But was he on? Oh, uh, was he on Joe Rogan? Maybe I feel like he I'm was. not sure because there was Probably. a guy. He had someone on. It was maybe a while back, who was talking all about this stuff and had written a book on it. I believe it was him. And it's just oh, then it's it was barely him. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting. So I haven't read the book, but I know I know who you're. What's it called about. again? Breath, breath, okay. or breathe. Actually, maybe it's breathe, breathe or breath. Names Let's Nestor. look it up. <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing because you know what he talks about is that that the he so he studies all these ancient skulls. He looks back on why because the palate. Okay, the whole reason in case anybody's like not fully privy on tongue ties. The whole reason why it matters for the tongue to be able to do the motions that it needs to do in breastfeeding is because to latch the nipple tissue up to the roof of their palate and do the undulation, the peristaltic motion of the tongue that pulls the milk out. You know, like when you're milking a cow, there's a certain motion you're doing. You're not just like squeezing it like this. You have right. to do this thing to get the milk to flow properly. And when a baby's tongue is tied to the floor of the mouth and it cannot reach up there, that action ain't happening. And it's going to rub and chafe the nipple. It's going to hurt the mom, damage the mom. You're now setting up the environment for mastitis and clogged ducts and colic. So they're inhaling a lot of um, air because now with the lip tie, the reason why the lip tie matters and lip and tongue ties are, you're seeing mo them together usually. It's very rare to have one without the other. And the, the lip tie matters because if they're not creating that flanged seal where their lips are like, you know, out like this on the breast, then air is going to be getting in with every swallow. Now they're colicky. Oh, my baby's colicky. Okay, well, what? What does that mean? It doesn't always mean that they're tongue-tied, but potentially there's latch changes that can happen. Potentially there's something that the mom is eating, or if it's formula-based, then there's something in the formula that they're reacting to. Um, but it doesn't just mean that it has to be the rest of your life that you're holding this screaming, crying baby that's clearly in pain, usually GI pain. Uh, going to the chiropractor and adjusting is very helpful. Craniosacral therapy, of course. And then also just like really, if you are nursing, getting really, really good latch advice and help. But the whole reason that it that this matters for older kids that aren't breastfeeding or if people are like, well, I'm never going to breastfeed, so I don't care. It's like, OK, fair enough. But the palate still matters. And the tongue being mm -hmm. root, lashed to the roof of the mouth like this. Being mm -hmm. up there, that is how at any moment when you are not actively talking, eating or drinking, your tongue should be in your mm -hmm. mouth with your teeth gently closed and your lips sealed. Yep. Yes. Since you can't, you can't see what she's doing. If you click your tongue. Oh, sorry. Like that. Yes. The spot where your tongue is suctioned to the roof of your mouth before it clicks down 
that's where you want your tongue to be. And it should be your full tongue. Like I can't get my full tongue up there. I can get maybe the first half, but the back, yes, I should actually, be the entire back. I actually yep. can't because when I, well, I can, but when I do, it somehow blocks off my entire airway and I can't breathe through my nose. So Whoa. I don't know what's Whoa. going on. Yeah. I don't know what's going on back there, but that's on my to-do list of scans to get. <laughs> Because yes. I need to, I need to find somebody who can an airway certified dentist, which there are a couple near me, and actually mm -hmm. make an appointment and go and have my airway scanned and see what exactly is going on back there. Because yes, uh, that's not normal. It's not normal. And so if, when your tongue is up to the roof of your mouth, a few things are happening for children. Well, first of all, this is happening in utero when babies are born. If they're if they have a high palate, their tongue has not been suctioned to the roof of their mouth the entire time that they were developing in utero. It should be. Because there are babies that are born with these nice, wide, flat, down palates and tongues that can reach. And, you know, these little babies will play and you'll see that their tongue is up when they're playing or when they're laughing or they're, you know, they'll see it. Um, it blows my mind, actually, when I see it because I didn't see that with my kids. But anyways, so if their palate is high like that, the reason it's high is because the tongue hasn't been suctioned to the roof of the mouth, pulling it down. That light pressure of the suction pulls it down and flattens and widens, widens it. And that is what is supposed to be happening. So not only is the tongue important for breastfeeding, it's important for the whole shape of the face and the palate. And the palate is important. Why do we care if the palate is down? Okay, because the palate, the roof of the mouth, is the floor of the nose. Mm -hmm. It's the floor of the sinuses. And what happens when we don't develop our mid-face very well because we have cramped little tiny sinuses is we have long face syndrome, which is really fascinating. If you look up pictures on like Google images of long face syndrome. This is my or husband. Type in long, my yes, type in long face myofunctional therapy, M-Y-O, Myo, meaning tongue and muscle. Um, what these people will do, even with adults, because bones are malleable. Yes, children, it's most malleable. But adults can still have really massive changes to their craniofacial structure when they start to change the way that the tongue moves in the mouth. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's really, you can change the entire way that your jaw comes forward, your sinuses widen. And then now we have less issues with chronic sinus infections, allergies, um, constantly looking tired and bags under the eyes. Sometimes that like darkness under the eyes of children is not allergic shiners from food allergies and food sensitivities. Sometimes it's really poorly um, developed mid-face syndrome wow. of a high palate. And so we need to be thinking about that in constellation of these other symptoms that are going on. But also, with you were saying about airway, that's probably the most important thing. If we cannot breathe through our nose because we have deviated septums, which means like the, the line of bone that goes down and splits your two nostrils in half is kind of cramped. It collapses off to one side, again, because your whole sinus structure that's here behind your eyes and your nose, uh, because it doesn't develop properly. And now we have chronic problems of not being able to breathe through your nose when you're not congested and you're not sick and you don't have allergies. This is a huge problem. And he discusses this in the book really well. All of the, he does a study, kind of like that guy did back in the day when he ate like McDonald's every day and all of his parameters yeah. changed and blood health changed. So this guy does a study where he blocks his nose, him and another buddy do this. So two different people, they block their nose and they mouth breathe only for 30 days and they check all these physiological health parameters. And it's amazing. That just gives me anxiety just thinking about it. It's really wild. <laughs> it's really wild. We have to be no nasal breathing. That is what our noses are for. We are not meant to be breathing out of our mouth. Yes, mm -hmm. in the instance of active talking or working out or something, maybe there's some more of that. But this is really important in so many, the, the airway situation, sleeping. So 
if you're sleeping on your back, your side doesn't really matter, and your tongue is falling into the back of your mouth because it's not suctioned to the roof of your mouth, or you have a very cramped, your your jaw never really came forward when, as a child, and so it's backwards and it's closing off the airway, there's a constellation of ways that this can happen. You are now having sleep apnea. You are having apneic events. Apnea, meaning a neck, you know, is lack of oxygen. You are suffocating all night long in micro amounts. It's small because your body will do things like grinding your teeth. When you grind your teeth, it helps open the airway. It's your body's way of attempting to get more oxygen to your brain. This is why people are fatigued all day long. They are ADHD. They have ADHD symptoms because their brain is never able to get into that deep rest. And they're kind of like on edge all day. Their nervous systems are really jacked up. Also, when your tongue is not to the roof of your mouth, your vagus nerve, which runs along the inside of your palate there, is not stimulated. Your vagus nerve is your largest input of parasympathetic nervous system input. And we need that. That's why babies will suck on their thumbs or their pacifiers. Like they will, they want to suck, but especially kids that are tied, you'll see tend to be finger suckers or prolonged pacifier suckers because their tongue isn't doing what it should be. They're not getting that parasympathetic input and they want it and they need it and they crave it. And so they're constantly, they're putting something else up there so that they can get that stimulation. Does that make sense? So yeah. it's like, yeah, this is so important. It's so much beyond just like, oh, could I breastfeed my baby or not? It's like a whole life trajectory thing. Yeah. And I don't know why it's happening more and more often. That is probably the next biggest thing. That's the should... most curious thing for me. Well, I will why? Say, so I have, well, I have like a sort of a theory. Well, one, me too. I, I did, have a sort of a theory. I did, I, I did check up on, on this, this guy uh, who wrote the book and it is breath. And he okay, was on you. Joe Rogan. <laughs> so, okay. so we were both right. Um, so I have spina bifida, which, so for those of you who don't know a lot about tongue ties and issues in the midline. So when you are in utero and your neural tube is forming, so they say you need to take folic acid, which is garbage. Folate is what you should be taking for prevention of neural tube defects. Apparently, they didn't know this until the 80s. And even then, I don't think my mom would have taken it. But regardless... They didn't know this until the 80s, that there was a connection. It was like a few years after I was born, that there was a connection between uh, low levels of folate, or they say folic acid, in, in your system and neural tube defects, which can be as mild as, there's two forms of spina bifida. There's spina bifida occulta, which is the type that I have. So you can still walk and do all the things, but your spine didn't completely form. It didn't completely close around your spinal cord in at least one area. Wow. And I didn't know about this until uh, I had had some x-rays done and nobody nobody noticed it until I went to a chiropractor. My, fir my first chiropractor that I went to, he was the one to notice that I had spina bifida. But anyway, so there's occulta, which is what I have. And then there's manifesta, which is the one that you've probably heard of where like parts of the baby are coming out and it's incompatible with life and it's terrible. So, yeah. but they all have to do with midline structures. So if you're not able to uh, process that folate and you're not getting enough folate, not only can you get this, but you can get tongue ties, lip ties, any of the stuff that's in the center. And especially if you have the MTHFR gene mutation, are you not able to process any of that and therefore may end up with some of these midline structures? So my guess is 
there's just more of us with this gene mutation now for whatever reason. And we're unable to process it. We didn't know years ago that, I mean, even with my first pregnancy, I was taking folic acid, like prescription folic acid, because I told them I have spina bifida. And they were like, you should take more of this stuff you can't absorb. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. You know, like, well, and it's, it's, it's a, the tongue and lip ties thing, like the midline defects that you're talking about are the almost the opposite of the spina bifida, right? Because they're too tight. Yeah. It's like we put, we pumped all of this folic acid in synthetic form of a vitamin that we need to be in a different form, which was called folate, like you mentioned. And we put it in everything. We fortified bread yeah. and cereal, everything, all grains were fortified with extra folic acid to prevent spina bifida, which I get. But given the fact that it's not in the right form and there is a large population that has you know, sort of this dirty gene mutation, dirty in quotes, meaning like it, the epigenetics of it are turned in a way where it's not processing folic acid, the synthetic form, because there's a couple of steps biochemically that has to happen. And if your gene that's supposed to do that, or the, sorry, the gene that codes for the enzyme that's supposed to do that, if it's that efficient, now you don't, like you have all this folate that you are not processing properly in your system. And yeah, that was my theory too, is that now it's like an overload. It's not a lack yeah. of like in your case and like before in the eighties or before the eighties, now it's an overload, right? So it's tight midline structures. It's these babies that come out and they have tongue ties, lip ties, they have sacral dimples and persistent stork bites in the back of their neck. And they're so tight, like their neck and their shoulders and they have torticollis and they'll, you know, they're more prone to the funky head shapes and they'll might need helmets and stuff. And it's like, what is going on here? We need to be investigating yeah. this, figure this yeah. out. Why is it a chemical in the environment? Is it toxins? Is it that or that, whatever? But that I think is the best theory because it makes sense physiologically and it is what we're seeing too. But I mean, like you, with all three of my kids, well, with my first, I did take extra folate. It was methylated folate, but still I took extra and I do have a mutation. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know about my husband, but I have one of them. But then even with my, you know, second and third, I've learned more about this and I've tried to be more careful and really getting, you know, plant-based, like from the dark leafy greens, like getting my folate from non-synthetic vitamin form, even if it was methylated folate. And it's still resulted in tongue-tied children. So I don't really know what's going on. Maybe it's, it's got to be multifactorial. It's something right. in the air. It's something in the water. It's something that's happening where. Yeah, potentially genetic. Like yes. if you had it too. Yes. It's like, what? you know, but it well, seems like well, there's so many more. My, my situation is both. One part's too open and the other parts are too close. Exactly. So like, why? Exactly. Yeah. There's, yes. there's got to be something to like what you and I have said, that's got to be a factor, but I agree. It can't just be the only thing because then when I did yeah. switch and I did take folate and methylated folate with the other two, you know, it still happened with the, the most recent one that I was, you yeah. know, and I wasn't taking too much. I was taking like a, an okay amount. It's, it can't be the only reason. Otherwise this wouldn't continue. Right. right. It has to be multifactorial for sure. But I guess in conclusion with that whole tongue tie aside, which is a really important conversation, I'm glad we had it, is that all of this stuff matters for multiple areas of our lives. It's not just breastfeeding and is it comfortable for mom? It's airway and face development and sinus development. And, you know, sleep apnea puts you at risk for heart attacks, heart diseases, obesity, mm -hmm. lots of different things, ADHD, like we discussed, but... Yeah, like cognitive function's a big one. Yes, it's a really big one. And just anxiety, depression... Up, like you were talking about. And again, I think that's probably mostly because of the lack of vagal nerve input on the roof of the mouth from the tongue and that sort of sense of calm. Like our tongue is, I had this really interesting, um, amazing pediatric 
physical therapist for my son when I was living in San Diego. And she had this beautiful analysis. I wish I would had uh, recorded it about the way that the tongue is so like is the stabilizer for infants and babies specifically. And the way that they begin to move with their hips and crawling and scooting and then walking and all of these motions are all rooted in the way that and the way that their tongue can or cannot move is very, very influential to all of these processes and so cool it's so cool it was so cool so anyway i'm glad that we talked about yeah yeah well and it's it it was not and it is now the other topic we'll make this a two topic episode (laughs) they're they're connected you know for a lot of a lot of people they end up with breastfeeding issues which could be mastitis because of some of these things and then i think a lot of people you know it's becoming more common that people are learning about these things and their application and adulthood and like you said it's not just for babies because look look at the issues that that i have or like my husband he has the longest head ever and i've always joked with him about how he ha- he has a child size head like he can wear child size hats and he's a and he's a grown man like long skinny small face but narrow yeah. yeah long skinny face and now, as I'm learning, what I'm learning about myself and what I need to do and what I need to do for my son, I'm looking at him and realizing, like, he has tori uh, underneath his tongue. Oh. So basically, the uh, the bone underneath your tongue, if you clench long enough and hard enough for a really long time, likely during sleep when you don't realize you're doing it, your bone can actually build up under there as a result. And so he has bone that's actually coming up under his tongue now. and he just cracked a tooth. Whoa. So he had a tooth that was, it had a small crack. And then very recently he ate something that should not have cracked his healthy, mostly healthy tooth. And just cracked that sucker right open. And so I'm like, dude, obviously, like what? And he has crowded lower lower teeth. Obviously, which he, and not obvious to him, but obvious to me now, you've got some issues too. <laughs> like we'll... And so, like, somebody with, with my issues plus somebody with his issues had a baby. And sorry, yes. sorry, Bo. Um, and that's, and yeah. that's what resulted. But I think as people are learning more about these things, they're like, oh, oh, they, yes, they're, I understand it now. And now in the dental world, there's this sort of, like, little cute alliteration or not alliteration rhyme that says fix it before six. So mm-hmm. fix before six, which you and I with our older, our already yeah. past that point but it's not like it's futile we need to just get on it now with expansion expansion yeah. yeah exactly it's close enough yeah so they're putting these little kids in palate expanders not necessarily t- turnkey palate expanders like you and i probably had but um they're sometimes they're gummy soft things that they chew on they're like the mayo munchie or the vivos mm-hmm. there's so many different appliance names but the point is to work on expanding that palate so that the tongue can re- reach the roof of a mouth. So this is the this is sort of the chicken or the egg is, all right, the kid is born. They never had their tongue up on the roof of their mouth during utero. Their, their palate is high and narrow. We do a revision. Maybe the tongue is now reaching up there and, it can, and can pull it down. But sometimes on these older kids, if we release a tongue that is too big now for a narrow high palate, it can't reach up there anyway. So... So what's happening in the dental world right now is that they're trying to figure out, well, what's the best way to go about this? Do we expand the palate first and then release the tongue so that it can reach up and there's a place for it to sit? Because if we're going to be doing all this work and we're going to go through the work of releasing the tongue and doing the myofunctional therapy and the body work with it, there needs to be a place for it to sit. And if it's not 
wide enough up there. So anyway, it's like this whole thing. It's really fascinating. I've gotten so nerdy and down this type of rabbit hole because all of my kids are going to need this. All of my kids are going to need expansion for the prevention of braces. The idea is that we prevent the need for braces because we just have enough room in our mouth and the teeth can come in and be pretty much set. I mean, maybe if it's aesthetic, that's one thing, but it's not because there's so much crowding or we're pulling adult teeth or anything like that that I feel like was such the way that you we all grew up, you know? Anyways, so yeah, it's there's a lot here. So much. There's a lot. Yeah. So, but okay. so I have a question back to breastfeeding. Yes. yes. Have you become, I know you're a naturopathic doctor and I think you briefly mentioned that you work with children and moms in similar situations as you. Are you are you a, also now like a certified lactation consultant yourself? No. I am not. Okay, so tell me like what you do like business-wise and then the evolution of this book. Yes, thank you for asking. So I am not, and I on, I thought about it often because I've I'm fascinated with it and I do want to know, you know, there's gaps in my knowledge, of course, and I'd like sure. to fill those in. I feel like I know a lot because of my experiences, unfortunately, but, and that's kind of like always our biggest blessing, right? Like wherever we have, Absolutely. Free, yeah, mm-hmm. that's kind of where we become the shining light to help other people not experience what we experience. So I'm very grateful to that and I'm glad I'm on the other side of it now. <laughs> not to say that if I ever have another child that I might not ever get it again. But anyways, when my third was born, I, no, sorry, my second, I started my business, which is called Milk Medicine, and it's a resource for moms. It's a natu- natural health resource for moms. It's evolved over the years, of course, with having ch- different children. And um, I was my plan was to open a practice in Idaho when we moved back here. So I'm from here. I was going to school in California. We moved back right before the pandemic. So things didn't happen. <laughs> and uh, we decided to have the third kid, too. So I am not the kind of person that can work very well during postpartum. And it was, I just have to focus on it. It's difficult. And my third actually ended up being my most difficult child by like orders of magnitude Mm. in terms of sleep. So it was not happening. So milk medicine has really come in waves for sure. But so with the Mm. book, I really had this on my heart for years. I wanted to organize my thoughts because what ended up happening was my colleagues, my other, you know, naturally doctor colleagues would reach out to me with patients that they had that had mastitis or whatever. And so I ended up repeating myself time and time again about what to do and how to manage it and things to be thinking about to rule out. I was like, I just have to write this down. I really need to. But I just hadn't had the bandwidth for it until this most recent August 2022. So the other thing that was interesting that came out was that the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine changed their mastitis protocols for the first time in years and years and years in August of 2022. And so I was able to incorporate in some, some, uh, some sort of their jargon more these ideas, which was cool because there was a lot of what I was doing, but I didn't really know that it was what was in line with, you know, the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, but because of my own experience. So what do we think when people say, how do you treat mastitis? Oh, okay. So like you put a hot pack on there, you massage the crap out of it, and you push the clog out if there's a clog, or you feed and pump a ton and you really get that milk out. And I did, I, I definitely had, again, because I've had 10 bouts of it to practice different things on, <laughs> I've done that and it didn't help me, you know? So I didn't know if it was because I was getting a really different kind of mess. Again, then the inflammatory kind, I, I learned that that's where what I had and going back and forth with all these different things. So the book is a really good compilation now of pretty much everything that I know about mastitis and multiple different angles to attack it from. So just to cover sort of what do you do if you get mastitis? This 
is the general plan. And it's all written out there, but this is like the main idea. If anybody's wanting some main takeaways, it's about resting the breast. So that means not overly pumping, not overly feeding the breast. So we used to think about the boob and the breast and ducks and the nipple, all sort of like tracks on a highway or a train track or something. And, oh, if there's a clog in one little line of, out, you know, a duct, we can just shove it through with our thumbs, <laughs> like push yeah. it through. But it's really not like that. It's more like an organ. Yeah, I mean, it is an organ. The breasts are organs. Mm -hmm. But it's really almost more like a spleen or a liver, like this sort of glandular, mushy mass where all of these ducts are actually like multi-layered. They're crossing. Some are bigger, some are smaller. Like when we're pushing down like that towards the nipple because we think we're getting a clog out, although, yes, some women have had lots of success with that, for sure. Um, it's not always pushing something out in a in a one directional sense you know what i'm saying and it's really irritating a lot of the structures around it and depending on the individual person as well somebody like me who has really sensitive breasts that get inflamed easily and quickly it's not the right thing to be doing because it's sort of this glandular mushy mass not something that has these direct like a bladder i think what we think of it is like a bladder and a urethra and it's like okay you're just going to push it through the tube no 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 mm -hmm. it's not it's not like that. It's like cobwebs it's almost like fascia like these little ducks are so thin. They're so thin. They're so small. They're crossing each other. They're multidirectional. Yes, they eventually make it to the nipple. But like, it's just, you know what I'm saying? So anyway, that is like a big way that globally we're thinking in about the change of how do we manage breast stuff in general? So we're not trying to overpump and overfeed when we have an active mastitis. You're feeding and pumping like normal. Now, if you are an exclusive pumper, that's what you have to do. But if you do not, if you only pump maybe to like have an extra supply or something, ideally during an acute mastitis, you're not pumping at all because that kind of negative pressure, that suction is more irritating often to what's happening in the inflammatory situation than would be beneficial and helpful. Another thing is people would be using heat, but if there is a bunch of inflammation, heat only exacerbates the inflammation. So the other thought now is to use ice, which some women have been doing intuitively anyway, or using like cold cabbage leaf. Same thing because it's reducing the inflammation. When we reduce, when we use ice, we reduce the swelling and now the milk can flow better through the ducts. When we use heat, sometimes it gets everything a little more swollen. There's there, everything dilates, that vasodilation, but there's just not room. Well, we're trying for the milk to come out. And that's really what needs to happen. The milk needs to come out and flow like normal. And if there is a clog in there, which what is a clogged duct? Like, what even is that? Okay, what we know that it is now is it's like a biofilm. It's usually a mass of some milk pro proteins and milk fats, some epithelial cells, sometimes some bacterial masses, but maybe that doesn't mean that it's a bacterial etiology, but there's just a bunch of different kind of congealed goo that's sitting in this and it needs to Yum. work its thing out. <laughs> yeah, have you ever seen one of your own? No, it's never, it's never, you mean, have I seen the clog come out? Yes. I mean, no, I, luckily, I don't think anything has ever been clogged enough that like a chunk of something nasty has come out my boob. Has come out. Yeah. What does that look like? Yeah. Like how, cause like, it's just Ow. like, I know. Ew. Yeah. Is it just like thicker? Yes. Like, like how does it come out? Ringy. It's like, um, you know, the, the Instagram account, legendary milk sometimes has really good videos of people 
showing what their clogs look like when they come out. And wow. it's like this stringy, like oobleck, kind of like a thickened, like, uh, I don't know, like Yum. kefir, but in a line, Uh-oh. like in a gooey line. So, Whoa. so we want to rest the breast. We want to use ice rather than heat. Um, and then anti-inflammatories as well. So that could be something like ibuprofen. And in certain cases, I think that there's a time and place for a medication like that, because if there's so much inflammation, yeah. then reducing that inflammation is going to allow the whole area to allow the milk to flow. It makes sense. Same thing with ear infections. And I like, not that I'm giving medical advice right now, but I just say that like, it makes sense when kids are really, really congested and their little eustachian tubes are just blocked up with all this. And yes, of course, ear infection pain is also really big. And I am all about reducing suffering in kids and it mm-hmm. sucks that it also reduces the fever. I love fevers. Fevers are great. But if they're screaming their heads up because they're in so much pain, I don't know if that's like a great thing. But reducing inflammation with a pharmaceutical in that instance, and same thing with mastitis, makes total sense because of these tiny little tubes that things are trying to move through to flow through. And if we can reduce all of that, it can do what it's supposed to do. You know what I'm saying? So there's time and place. But we can use also natural anti-inflammatories, turmeric and ginger, and then anti-inflammatory practices. So like I was mentioning earlier, um, hydrotherapy. So my favorite thing to do with mastitis is called contrast hydrotherapy. So you take a really, really cold cloth, wet cloth, and you put it in a bowl of ice water, and then you take a warm cloth or, so the best way to do it, in my opinion, is just get a, a wet, clean washcloth, wring it out and then microwave it because it's going to keep its heat so much better than if you keep running it under hot water. But so you do one minute hot, three minutes, or sorry, one minute cold, three minutes hot, one minute cold, three minutes hot. And you do multiple rounds, multiple times a day. I outline how to do all of this, like I said. And that causes this vasoconstriction, vasodilation, vasoconstriction, vasodilation. And it helps to clear out the like immune cells that are all up in that area. All of the edema, the interstitial fluid, all of the different things that are blocking up that whole area. And it can really, first of all, it's an amazing way to reduce the pain like that. It is so helpful to reduce the pain. <laughs> But that's because it's reducing the inflammation because inflammation causes pain. Mm -hmm. So it also allows the milk to flow better. And then things like lymphatic massage as well, which is sort of the opposite of this typical pushing a duct down, you know, pressing down towards your nipple. You're instead with a lymphatic massage, you're working with the lymph. Again, you're trying to move all that lymphatic and interstitial fluid out and move it up. And so there's not so much. That's what that's why we get engorged. You know, engorgement is, yes, it's partially milk. But it's also all of this other fluid that's coming into the area like, what's going on? Mm-hmm. And it makes us so full. So anyway, if, you're, if you start at the nipple and you kind of work in these concentric circles up to the armpit where all the lymphatic fluid dumps. Sorry, I just touched my microphone there. Um, that can be really helpful too. Then there's all these herbs and homeopathics. Homeopathy is amazing. I know your, your audience knows it, which is great. Mm-hmm. And I outline sort of the different, I don't know, maybe there's like 10 different remedies in there that are based on different situations. You know, sometimes mastitis manifests as like very hot and red. Sometimes it's just so painful. Sometimes, you know, whatever. So there's different ways to distinguish which remedy would be better for you in that moment there as well. And then using antimicrobial herbs versus antibiotics for a period of time, if we can use, do that to avoid antibiotics. And then what to do if you do actually have to take antibiotics, what, how to prevent that rush situation from happening. Let's talk about nipple healing as well, because that's a huge one so that we prevent these instances from happening. Um, and then just the energetics, like I was mentioning earlier, you know, this 
lack of rest, postpartum, lack of taking care yeah. of ourselves and the overwork, like the, the, the overworked mom picture is so consistent with somebody who's getting mastitis. And I can really relate to that for my first with the six times that I had it in his first year, one year, six times, man, it was really rough. I, I that is insane. Yeah. I almost gave up. I remember thinking, okay, my goal is now six months. I want to nurse him to six months. And then I got there and I was like, okay, I guess I'll just take it one month at a time. But if I get mastitis again, I'm going to stop because I could tell my mental health was so bad, but I didn't really like, no, I don't know. I just, it was like a fog. I was in a fog. Um, so I really feel for people who've been there and maybe did stop because of that situation. And I, you know, no shame to you about that because if you weren't getting the resources, man, how in the world would you ever figure it out? Seriously. Like I was kind of pathologically bound and determined. I don't think it was necessarily good for me. I was sort of, I sort of denied my own body needs for this situation. And I am proud of myself. Like it's, it's a double-edged sword. Sometimes I think if I had a crystal ball and I could go back, would I have enjoyed my first child's first year of life and my wedding, which I don't almost remember because I was nine months postpartum and I don't really remember that much of it. You know, I was in the middle of all of this stuff and it just, my mental health wasn't all that great. So not to say that I would go back if I could, but I sometimes wonder like, was that, you know, but I've learned so much. It was like my hero's journey. It was my shadow work. I had to go through to like yeah, come on to the other totally. side. So anyways, yeah, that's kind of like the overview. And so Milk Medicine Now, my business is um, a membership model where I'm creating content every month for members that is like about pregnancy, birth, postpartum, newborn care, and then motherhood content in general. Like, you know, some of the my some of my favorite things to talk about are like the philosophy of what it means to be a mom and reparenting yourself and triggers and parenting in general and like what are we doing and this is such an opportunity and how to do it well and just self-reflection on what's happening for ourselves and how to take care of ourselves. So I there's a lot of so different awesome. topics. Yeah, thanks. It's been really fun. I just was like, I need to make something that is that feels good to me. Like I'm making I'm I'm speaking out the things that I've learned that I've come, you know, being a mom of three and going through all of these different situations, I am not somebody who thinks that motherhood is easy peasy cake. It's not. It's actually the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life. Yeah, same. Same. I, I thought having gone through all that school and all the things I've accomplished and, and being a nanny when I was in college and always babysitting, I was like, I got this. And I same. did, I, and I I did the same. not have this right? at all. I was I like, know. wow, this is just so much more exhausting yeah well and because you don't get a break like we my Never. husband and i joke all the time when we started our practice and we had like no money and we're working super hard and did everything ourselves from graphic design to you know building things for the office to you know everything oh and also being the doctors there we were thought we were exhausted oh we're so tired and now i'm like who was that because that was not tired i had no idea what was in store i had no idea the level of exhaustion because there's just they're relentless they just like they don't say you know what on saturday we'll let you sleep in or tonight i'm not going to wake up eight times and just keep switching boobs they just mm -hmm. do what they got to do and you just have to roll with it and it is it is the most challenging thing i've ever done ever and ever I'm just, just trying to make it through I'm I have one, like, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but, okay, I have a really quick book question. Yeah. I don't want to forget. 
Is this good for any first-time mom who, like, knows they're going to give birth soon? Like, so even though I never had mastitis or any clogged ducts, my engorgement was insane. I mean, bowling balls. Yeah. And I have really small chest, too. And I, like, looked like Dolly Parton. It was so crazy. I can remember. It was so crazy. The second time around, I was like, maybe it won't be as bad because, like, my body's done this before. And it was not as big, but it was actually, like, way harder. Faster, uh, like my, too. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, my boobs are rock hard. Um, I'm shocked that it just cleared. And, I mean, I guess my baby's had great latches and it was fine. But would this be, like, great techniques for first-time moms when that engorgement hits? And it's, like to prevent mastitis too. Yes, that's such a, I'm glad you asked that question because, you know, ideally, so a huge portion of the book is about prevention. And I do talk about engorgement specifically. There's a section about engorgement. There's a section about clogged ducts. So it's not just a mastitis manual. I guess I probably should have named it like engorgement plug ducts and mastitis because (laughs) it's true. It does. I talk about all of it because it's a spectrum, you know, like engorgement's where it starts and then things can become plugged and then now there's mastitis. Is it inflammatory? Is it bacterial? We have this delineation. I think you should have called it boobs explained. <laughs> yeah, boobs explained. <laughs> boobs in general explained. Yes, yeah. exactly. I mean, and so the first time mom, I wish every first time mom would have it so that they could read it and they could know the signs and symptoms. They could understand what to do because you don't want to be trying to find a resource like this at 2 a.m. when you're like, yeah. you're like, what is going on? Which is, yeah. I mean, I've been there. I've scoured the internet. There was nothing, and specifically about recurrent mastitis. So I have a whole section on that too, because that was me. And no one had anything to say to me. I can't tell you how many lactation consultants I have talked to through the years. And wow. they really just, and it's not any downside of them. It's just that there's not that much out there about this. Well, and they like, might why? not have learned it. If they didn't learn it, well, how yeah. can they pass it on to you? And I, and really, it wasn't even like out there. There wasn't yeah. much well, information. Exactly. And I, yeah. And so I... And there's still really even not. This is kind of my blend of experience mixed with physiology, like a, syn- a synthesis or a synergy. It really, like, it's so great because, like, kind of to tie back what I, like, abruptly interrupted with this question, which is going back to <laughs> maternal mental health and, like, how challenging it is, is, like, if most women who I talk to in my world have these goals to breastfeed, Let's make sure it's a positive experience. Like like Sarah and I talk about all the time with birth, like goal is a positive emotional outcome. You know, kind of regardless of what happens, you want to have a positive experience setting yourself up for the best success. So like breastfeeding is a massive part of the postpartum experience and yes. like how you reflect on that. And was it good? Was it bad? Like you got, I got married and I got married at seven weeks postpartum. Um, so I was still in the good for you. Yeah. Well, it was like, it was like our like legal ceremony. We got, we had our wedding earlier, whatever. Yeah. But yeah, I was in the thick of it. Um, but yeah, like looking back and being able to really say like, I had an amazing first year and I'm so proud of myself, even though you're, you had to go through the, yeah. the shit in your first year, you still are proud of yourself, but, um, now you get to help women not go through Exactly. And like you guys, you know, speaking about birth, it's the same. It's an analogy to the same, same, which is there's so many women who have stopped breastfeeding because they weren't getting help from these issues. And now they're like learning about it afterwards going, oh, my God, like what happened? I can't believe that happened. Where similar with birth, people are like realizing that they were jaded by the system because they were just shuttled in. And now they have this like crazy traumatic experience Mm -hmm. or whatever. 
and they didn't realize, you know, and now hopefully in the future, children that they have, if they're going to be able to have that opportunity, they'll do it differently. But it's like we're our whole goal is to prevent this from happening. Like we want the net effect to be positive and good because motherhood is hard enough, even when everything was perfectly right. Yes. What? Yeah, like it's ridiculous if they're if we're dealing with all these issues which really all comes down to like education it just comes down that no mm-hmm. one's talking about it and you all have to learn it after the fact when you've gone through the shit yourself and it's like whoa whoa hold on and they start talking to other people like us and you're like we're like no no no, yeah that happened to me that happened to me oh my gosh mm-hmm. me too and we're like wait why do we never talk about this why oh, you were experiencing that and i had no idea and like i could have known and i mm-hmm. so it's all about i mean i think all of our goal is the same which is to pack the subconscious and frontal conscious as well of women before they've had babies ideally or throughout the whole process of everything that they could need to know so that it's like a base level knowledge and then we'll they work on like with their intuition they get to layer on their motherhood intuition then they get to layer on if there's acute issues going on there's more pathology there's problems whatever then they seek out the resources and they know that the resources even exist and they can go to the right person and get some help but there's so much of that baseline education that needs to happen just so that like they can, you know, like when we go driving a car, we know so many different things before we're out on the road. But people, so many women have never seen a baby breastfeed until they're doing it themselves for the first time. Yeah, and it's seriously. so wild to me. That one of my clients, me. one of my clients, um, she's actually having a C-section tomorrow because she has placenta previa, which is not part of the point. But she was like, I met with her a couple of weeks ago. She was like, I've never changed a diaper. I was like, what? I was like, <laughs> Well, let's go. You're about to have a lot. You know, I did. I It was just yeah. like she said it like finally. She was like, yeah, I guess I'm just going to just learn on the go. And I'm like, yeah, you are. And so exactly. A diaper obviously is not a, as big of a deal as breastfeeding. But that's how so many women like it's you can learn how to change muscle. a diaper on the go. Right. You can learn how to change a diaper on the go. And once you're two diapers in, you're like, cool, I know how to do this. Breastfeeding is not like that. No, it is not like that. You have to learn and your baby has to learn. And I mean, that does go back to the tongue tie situation if they're, you know, physically um, not optimal, Um, like they have to learn, too. So you have to have like and again, going back to the vagus nerve, like you have to downregulate your nervous system to be ordered to have that connection with your baby so that they can you guys have to co-regulate that they have to have a downregulated nervous system. They have to be able able to settle into nursing so that you guys can learn together and there's not this like it's just not happening oh it hurts or that like frustration and that um just defeatist mindset if it doesn't go perfectly right away because everyone thinks like i'm just gonna learn i mean that's how i was because i but i like had lactation consultants in my phone if i needed them i was like i'm gonna see how it goes and i'm super grateful it went amazing Mm -hmm. um but I also have really good tools to like not super stress out like that. I don't flip a switch very easily. And women who have maybe not had a positive birth experience or or who are more just anxiety prone, like if it's not going perfect in the first day, or maybe they're like perfectionists. They're just maybe like, they oh. just, nobody told them that it takes a learning yeah. path. Like just yes, nobody even told them that it's okay that you're going to learn. Like you were saying, like the baby has to learn. You have to learn. And yeah, like for you, it sounded like it went, it was, it was pretty smooth process, but even still, like you were saying, you know, there was pain and there was tenderness. Actually, yeah. Yeah. Like I actually had a difficult time my second time, a more challenging time my second, because my daughter's mouth was really small (laughs) and much smaller than my son. 
I mean, your nipples are freaking enormous, right? And I'm just like, mouth is too little for my enormous nipple. And so it, I was like, but as a second time mom, I was just like, okay, like I have to help you open your mouth a little bit bigger. And I had mm -hmm. to like open her mouth with my I've fingers and I wasn't upset about it. I was just kind of like, oh, your brother's mouth was bigger than yours. This is new. Yeah, oh, I, it was just. But you were cool about it. You mom. knew that you could figure Way it out. Way calm about it. Yes. Yeah, totally calm about it. And once she was latched, I was like, cool, this, we got this. Um, right. But it was the initial getting her on was like not as easy as my first. So it was, it was interesting. So yeah, being able to just um, arm moms with these tools to help them have their dream breastfeeding experience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a funny story. Actually. And knock at mass is 11 times. So terrible. Oh, my God. But I have a funny story about kind of what you just mentioned, Emily, about is this a good book for first-time moms? Like, before any of this happens, I had someone over my house today taking photos who I actually met on Instagram, and she lives like 10 minutes from me. She asked me, I mean, very, very strange that we would be interviewing you today, Morgan, because she goes, do you know who Dr. Morgan McDermott is? And I was like, oh. Yes, I do. I'm interviewing her today. And she's like, really? She was like, because she has a friend who just had a baby like yesterday. And she said, I haven't gotten her something off of her registry. I haven't gotten her a gift yet. What I was thinking would be really useful is to get because you have other books, too, right? Or do you have other resources? Um, I have a webinar about cold and flu care, which could be helpful for, okay. you know, when you're. Yeah. So she was she mentioned your your book and some of your information. And she was like, I want to gift her some of uh -huh. this stuff. And I was like, that's a really great idea because it might not be something that she uses right away, but if she needs it, yeah. she doesn't have to go looking. And mm -hmm. how great would that be to already have that in your pocket and to know that it was there? Yeah, she's she hasn't had kids herself yet, but she's very wise on all these things. I'm like, that's I wish so we had nice. a friend like you when, yeah. when yeah. I had my first baby to know what was what actually mattered. You know, exactly. So. And I, you know, that is one thing that is, well, thanks for sharing that story. That, that is yeah, like very sweet to hear. I'm glad yeah. that it's getting out she, there, you know, thought about it. Yeah. And that mm -hmm. makes me so happy. Honestly, it warms my heart. It's such a tender point to me because it was so hellacious that anytime anybody says it ever helps them, I'm just like, I break down crying. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's my soul project. I just needed this to be out there so that people don't have to go with, go through what I did, you know? Mm -hmm. So Anyways, but it is, I feel like there's a shift in the air, right? Where baby registries are becoming things like meal trains and money for childcare or for like their other kids or, you know, yep. cleaning funds, um, different, you know, postpartum massages, postpartum craniosacral therapy, different things like that versus a gajillion different onesies that they're never going to wear or like bottles of pacifiers or silly toys or like a baby bath that's gigantic the hunk of piece of class plastic or whatever yeah. but there is this like shift which is great because it's like okay well what would actually be the most useful the consumerism of the baby world is shifting at least maybe this is only in our natural sort of it's hard world. to know but it's because nice i think outside yeah. of it people are still doing that i forget that yeah it's a it's a small little world inside like those who know <laughs> And that everybody else doesn't know. But that's what we're here for. You know, like exactly. you share that info with somebody who's about to have a baby and say, listen, you do not need all of those plastic things. Like you're not going to yes. use them. You need like a place to lay your baby down, some burp cloths, 
and some mm-hmm. diapers of some kind. Yeah. And that's like it. I mean, they don't exactly. they have it. The carrier. My sister was like mad at me because I didn't have anything on my registry and I had a doula fund. I was like, she's like, there's nothing on your registry. And I was like, I know, I want money. She's <laughs> yeah, like, no. I'm a kid. I was like, okay, well, this is my baby shower. So you can be mad about it, but that's what I want. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's another great point. A doula. Oh my goodness gracious. You know, and doulas are yeah. pricey and it's like the best money you'll ever spend when you totally you experience it later. It's like invaluable. So yeah. anyways, yeah. Well, this was so informative. I am going to get your ebook because yeah. my boobs were rock hard rocks. <laughs> Well, it sounds like it's filled with so much information from like just all angles that can I just say, how sad is it that you felt like in this day and age you had such bad experiences where no one gave you good information because it's just not out there because nobody gives a shit about helping women and mothers. Seriously. Like it's just so low on the totem pole. That nobody is doing the work except for somebody who's been through it so many times. They're like, F this. I don't want other women to have to go through this. And if nobody else is going to put this out there, I'm going to do it. Because somebody needs that to do that. And these people need help. So thank you for putting it together. Oh, yeah. So that future Thanks people so awesome. don't have to suffer. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, thank you so much for being here. Let us know. Where, if people want to get in touch with you, where can they find you and any of the things that you're doing? Yeah. So milkmedicine.com is my website. My Instagram account is very active and is a great place to learn free resources and just sort of get to know me a little bit better. That's Morgan McDermott. Uh, McDermott is M-A-C-D-E-R-M-O-T-T. And then I forgot to mention that I have a podcast as well. That's right. You just started with... Yes, with Dr. Leah Gordon, and it is called Healthy as a Mother, and we talk all topics from becoming and being a mother, similar to you guys, um, and from the naturopathic doctor perspective. So she, Dr. Leah, focuses on the fertility and preconception side of things, and then I focus on the post birth, postpartum, and motherhood side of things. And so it's really the full spectrum, and that's called Healthy as a Mother. It's on all places that you can find podcasts, of course. But I would say that uh, MilkMedicine.com has all of these resources. And one, if you were just going to remember one thing of where to find me, that would be it. Awesome. I love it. And I love that Thank name so too. Much. It's so cute. Such a good Thank name. You. I had the yeah. same thought. Yeah. And and Thank and you. it was available as a website still, which is great. I literally oh. had that same thought too. Yeah. I'm like, damn, nice job. Yeah. Thank seriously. you. I bought it a long time ago because I, because again, the, you know why I named it Milk Medicine is because my whole thing started out of having problems with mastitis with my first. And so it was about milk. Everything was about milk. And, you know, all babies drink milk if whether or not it's formula or if it's milk, whatever. But I just loved that. Like it seemed to really embody motherhood, like this idea of milk and babies and um, shifting, you know, my my ship, my initial plan was going in to be like a fertility, natural fertility doctor. And because of my postpartum experience, I really shifted gears into and I love birth. So I just love I love birth. It's amazing. So I love to talk about it. But my heart is with the postpartum women because they're just left in the dust and I'm over it. And it's yeah, so right. hard. And it I'm doesn't over it happen. too. Yeah, I'm over it. So let's be over it together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We deserve better. We deserve better. Exactly. So thank you yeah. so much for having me on this run. 
you guys are doing such amazing work and yeah, just continuing to shift and change the narrative. And I love this most recent, you know, placenta hashtag and all of the talks that are happening because. Oh, yeah. Tonight, but I love it because. Leave the placenta alone. Just exactly. leave it alone. Just leave it alone. It'll, it'll come out. Just don't And it blows it. my mind that these <laughs> healthcare practitioners wouldn't make the, the connection that, oh, when I tug and I pull on this placenta, now the woman hemorrhage. Mm, I wonder no. why. No, that wasn't it. It was inherent, and your body is faulty, and now you're just bleeding everywhere, and it's your fault. And so next time, you should definitely be in the hospital, because if you're not, you're going to bleed to death, okay? Yeah. Oh, my okay. God. Yeah, I'm just, I'm over a lot of things, if you couldn't tell. <laughs> yeah. And that's why we're here, so. Yes, I love it. Yes. Okay, thank <laughs> you, ladies, so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, thank you. All right, everyone, we Bye. will see you next week. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the Birth Uprising podcast. Together, we can create an uprising in the birth world. Don't forget to share and subscribe so you can be notified every time a new episode is released. 